Hillary Clinton says she'll carry the nomination battle to the end of the primary season. Then what? And we know abortion kills babies, but how does it change women? We'll ask someone who's been there. Also, is God male? And does it matter? We'll ask Crystal College's Dr. Barry Creamer. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Crystal College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire. We will not falter. And we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. With the help of those who stood up from Portland to Louisville, We have returned to Iowa with a majority of delegates elected by the American people. And you have put us within reach of the Democratic nomination for President of the United States of America. Barack Obama went back to Iowa. He says that's where his momentum started. Uh, Yesterday, he won handily in the Oregon primary. Hillary Clinton won the Kentucky primary. But he says he's reached a milestone in his campaign for the White House. Obama is only 100 delegates short of the number that he needs now for the nomination. Uh, For her part, though, Hillary Clinton is not ending her candidacy. She says until all the primaries are done, that will be June 3rd, uh, the final primary will take place then. Uh, And her her only chance, and this really isn't even a chance, is uh, that she would somehow be able to convince the party to seat the delegates from Florida and from Michigan. These delegates were deprived of their seats because the uh, these states moved their primaries up uh, in opposition to the rules of the Democrat Party. Uh, she's still fighting for those delegates. As a matter of fact, she compares her fight for the Michigan and Florida delegates uh, to uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, She also said that the race for the Democratic nomination remains close. We're winning the popular vote, and I'm more determined... I'm more determined than ever to see that every vote is cast and every ballot counted. Really, uh, both candidates now are claiming that they are winning the popular vote. Her claim is based on seating those Florida and Michigan delegates. She did win in Kentucky, huge win, 65 percent to 30 percent. She says that she has a better chance than Barack Obama to defeat John McCain. We have to select a nominee who is best positioned to win in November. 
that's her argument, and these are what her arguments are based on. She's going to continue to make them, and you really do have to hit, admire her uh, persistence. Uh, also, did you hear this news? Uh, American Airlines now is going to be charging $15 for the first checked bag. Now, recently they... Uh, Slapped a charge of $25 on a second bag if you bring two bags on and ch- actually check them. So what will you do when you travel by plane? Will you pay that fee or will you just try to pack lighter and just carry on everything that you're going to take on your trip? We're going to take your calls on this and other matters. The number is 800-881-9270 for your reactions uh, to this fee uh, for baggage. Should you get your bag free uh, on the airline, or is this just legitimate? I mean, American Airlines is in uh, business to make a profit. The gas prices are uh, hitting them uh, in the pocketbook. And uh, to keep flying, they say they have to do this. Well, also, uh, today's uh, Washington Times includes an article where columnist Ralph Hallow observed that conservatives uh, who really aren't too thrilled with John McCain as a presidential candidate are putting aside their differences because of their concern for the Supreme Court. And they're really referring to statements like this from John McCain. I want to look you in the eye and tell you I'm proud of my support for those judges to the bench that strictly interpret the Constitution of the United States and do not legislate from the bench. Uh, They say that this issue is so powerful that they're going to look past what they see as John McCain's other flaws. Well, uh, you know, another Washington paper, the Washington Post, had a very interesting idea today, and that is to get Hillary Clinton to drop out now so that he can just unify the party and move forward and run against John McCain. He says Barack, uh, the 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 columnist here in the Washington Post, his name is is, uh, James Andrew Miller, says that Barack Obama should promise Hillary Clinton now that if he wins in November, the vacancy on the Supreme Court that will likely come up, we've got some very ancient uh, justices on the Supreme Court, will be hers, that she will be the first on a list of one uh, as uh, his pick for the Supreme Court. And, you know, it, it, it's not out, outlandish, says this columnist, because uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama agree on so many things. They share many orthodoxies, and that Obama also could under uh, understandably appreciate Hillary Clinton's keen mind. So he should promise Hillary Clinton the first court vacancy, and then her supporters would have a stronger incentive to actually support him for the president uh, than they would if she were just going to be vice president. Of course, a lot of people saying that if their candidate on the Democrat side is not nominated, they're going to vote for John McCain. So give us a call on these two issues. First of all, what are you going to do when you fly, are you going to pay the $15 for your bag to check it? Or are you going to try to fit everything in a carry-on piece of luggage? We'd love to hear your opinion on that. The number is 800-881-9270. But on the political side, is this a good idea for Barack Obama? Should he promise Hillary Clinton the Supreme Court spot? Uh, should one open up, as it most likely will? Uh, would this be good or would this be bad for the country and why? Give us a call, 800 800- Eight eight one nine two seven zero, and uh, of course, uh, let's go back to a couple of pieces of news uh, while you're calling in. Um, President Bush has been speaking about Cuba, and of course, uh, there's been a lot of talk about Cuba this week. Uh, there's an observance today at the White House of Cuba Solidarity Day, and in solidarity with the Cubans, not with the government, but with the Cuban people. Um, 
they are now, of course, allowed for the first time to own cell phones. Uh, the Bush administration is changing their embargo rules, not for everything, but to allow Americans to send phones to relatives on the island. We're going to change our regulations to allow Americans to send mobile phones to family members in Cuba. If Raul is serious about his so-called reforms, he will allow these phones to reach the Cuban people. Wonder if he's serious about his reforms, and uh, certainly it would be a great gift for Cubans to get a hold of some cell phones, especially those with relatives over here in the United States. President Bush also uh, signed a bill uh, protecting Americans from losing their jobs or their health insurance uh, if genetic testing, which is now, of course, available, shows that they're susceptible to certain diseases. Here's a report from Mark Smith. The measure forbids employers and health insurance companies from denying jobs, promotions, or health coverage to those whose genetic tests show them predisposed to things like cancer and heart attack. In other words, it protects uh, our citizens from having genetic information misused. And signing the measure in the Oval Office, Bush said it does so without undermining the insurance industry. Backers call it the first major civil rights bill of the new century and will mean Americans no longer refuse genetic tests or take them under false names, fearing the results could be used against them. Mark Smith at the White House. Now, in signing this bill uh, that prevents the wrongful use of genetic information, President Bush acknowledged uh, the work of uh, one certain senator on this bill, Senator Ted Kennedy. I also want to pay homage today to uh, not only the members of the Congress who are behind me, but also the Senator Ted Kennedy, who has worked for over a decade to get this piece of legislation to a president's desk. Uh, we were talking about the courts, and we are taking your calls. Uh, we want to know if you think it's a good idea for Barack Obama to promise Hillary Clinton she'd be uh, his first nominee to the Supreme Court. Uh, but at issue with the courts, of course, is always the possibility of overturning uh, the Supreme Court's 1973 abortion decision, Roe versus Wade. Uh, but there is, uh, there are other ways to fight abortion, as we know. One way is to convince women not to have them or not to have repeat abortions. And our guest uh, later in the program says actually that saving the next baby begins with compassion for those who've already made a tragic choice. So we're going to talk about that in the next segment. Also, there's a new poll out that shows that 62% of people believe that God is a male. Only 1% uh, believe God is female. Got to wonder what everybody else believes. But also the same poll, and it was taken in the United Kingdom, 49% of those studied think all religions discriminate on the basis of gender. So have you ever thought about these questions? Uh, believe me, the gender-neutral Bible folks have thought about these things, and many of the hardcore Christian feminists have also thought about them. But what does the Bible say about it? We're going to ask Dr. Barry Creamer, Associate Professor of Humanities here at uh, the Criswell College. But first of all, let's go back to this uh, Washington Post uh, piece, this suggestion uh, by uh, James Andrew Miller about a way for Barack Obama to close things out now in the nomination process. He says that as the primary season nears a merciful end, uh, the Clinton-Obama conflict is giving away to Obama-Clinton uh, conjecture. And uh, many in the Democrat Party support uh, a dream ticket of both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And, uh, you know, what do you think about that? Would that be a good ticket, uh, a Clinton-Obama ticket, or is that even necessary? A lot of people, though, think Hillary's actually earned it, and she has fought hard, and she's been pretty feisty, and she's not quit yet, 
And a lot of people are worrying, of course, that their supporters will stay home in November if Hillary Clinton isn't part of the ticket. And some of the exit polls in places like Kentucky are showing this. People are saying they do not want Obama to be um, on the ticket or to be president, and they're going to vote for John McCain if Hillary's not the nominee. You're hearing a lot of that. So the opponents uh, are countering that in terms of of the electoral vote, Certain opponents of this idea of an Obama-Hillary ticket are saying that Clinton wouldn't help Obama because she wouldn't add any states that wouldn't already go for Obama. And you've got to remember one thing. Uh, she may claim Arkansas and she may claim New York, but she's really from Illinois originally, and he's from Illinois, so she doesn't add a whole lot there. Those states would probably, um, Arkansas would probably not go Democrat anyway, and New York would probably would. Uh, so the possibility also, I think Barack Obama would probably have trouble with the possibility of both Clintons uh, being sort of in the vice presidency and sometimes ganging up on him. Uh, but again, uh, this columnist in the Washington Post says there's another way to foster party unity without forcing a political marriage. Uh, it is likely that the next president will face at least one Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, now, this is uh, nowhere more important than the in the abortion issue. It's also probably very important in the marriage issue, which is getting uh, out there again because of this uh, same-sex marriage decision in California. But uh, this columnist, and let me know if you agree, says Obama should promise Hillary Clinton right now that if he wins in November, that first vacancy will be hers. And he talks again about how they really agree philosophically on just about everything. And uh, he says if Obama were to promise Clinton the first court vacancy, her supporters would actually have a stronger incentive to support him for president than they would if she were going to be vice president. And, of course, it's a pretty delicate balance right there, right now, on the Supreme Court between liberals and conservatives. And this would give Hillary Clinton a major role in charting the country's future. Um, and probably, if she were vice president, she has no guarantee of being quite that important in charting the future. Uh, I think it's Ted Stevens, uh, who is quite elderly, who is most likely uh, to be the first vacancy, although he's fairly healthy. Also could be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is not quite as healthy. Both of them, though, on the liberal side of the court, and so it wouldn't really change the ba- uh, the balance of the court. But uh, anyway, this is just an interesting way to maybe stop things now and not wait uh, till the June 3rd final primary, which will be taking place. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to talk about abortion in the next segment. And, you know, women having abortions may experience immediate relief. You know, they'll think, the problem solved, but is it? How does abortion affect women, and what can be done to minister to these women and to prevent repeat abortions? The founder of the Abortion Changes You Outreach will join us next on Jerry Johnson Live. Stay with us. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. 
Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. It is good to be back in Iowa. Barack Obama says it feels good to be back in the state where his string of victories began, and uh, he feels like he's sailing now to the Democrat nomination for president, uh, basically reaching a milestone, he says, after the Oregon primary. He's only 100 delegates away from the nomination. Uh, But let's go back to what he said in July when he was speaking to Planned Parenthood, because this goes to the topic of this segment. He talked about what the stakes are in uh, this election. With one more vacancy on the court... We could be looking at a majority hostile to a woman's fundamental right to choose for the first time since Roe versus Wade, and that is what is at stake in this election. Last week, Barack Obama received the endorsement of the NARAL PAC. And, of course, uh, it's sort of surprising that they would not endorse uh, Hillary Clinton because they've held her up as uh, their candidate for a long time for a Senate in New York. And uh, this is the position of Barack Obama, though, that on several areas in, uh, in uh, regarding the sanctity of life. He opposed the Supreme Court ruling upholding the ban on partial birth abortion. And uh, he opposed the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which is known as Lacey and Connors Law. Uh, he also uh, voted against in the Illinois State Senate the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act there. Uh, And then uh, you all remember the statement he made when he was talking about HIV AIDS prevention for young girls. He said he didn't want his daughters punished with a baby. And then he voted three times against the Born Alive legislation, which would provide medical care to a child uh, surviving a botched abortion. So that's where uh, Barack Obama is on abortion. And uh, so we know that through the legislative process, it's important to protect life, but there are other ways to lessen the number of abortions. And uh, with us to talk about this is Micheline Friedenberg. And uh, Micheline is the creator of Abortion Changes You Outreach. She's also the author of Changed, Making Sense of Your Own or a Loved One's Abortion Experience. Micheline, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. All right. There are many ways uh, to work on the abortion issue. Uh, There's uh, the legislative path, trying to reduce the number of abortions. There's the uh, pregnancy center, which is a very effective means of helping young women see that uh, abortion is not the right path. And then sometimes, of course, uh, there's just the idea of ministering to women who have had abortions to try to prevent them from making that decision again, correct? Well, certainly we need to be, I mean, I think we need to focus on uh, those who have made that decision. They say one out of three women, by the time they're 45, if the abortion rate stays the way that it is, will have an abortion. 
by the time that they're 45. And then when you think of the men and the other family members involved, there are a lot of hurting people today who've either experienced an abortion themselves or maybe somebody close to them and certainly offering hope and healing to them. And as you've already alluded to, um, a woman who has had an abortion is vulnerable to having future abortions. Micheline, what prompted you to write this book and to just pursue this path of ministering to these women? Well, I've been there. When I was 18, I became pregnant and thought that I could erase the pregnancy by having an abortion and move on with my life, but I was unable to do that. And I suffered in silence for years, not knowing that anybody else felt that way. And when I finally reached out for help and realized I wasn't alone, I began to think of all the others who may be in a similar situation. And then as I revealed this to my parents and watched them begin to grieve the loss of a grandchild and began to hear the stories of men and women and uh, students who've lost a brother or sister to abortion, that desire grew to create something to communicate to them that their experience is real, their emotions are real, they're not alone, and there's a way to work through all of this to find a place of peace and wholeness. Micheline, uh, pro-choicers would tell us that not all women uh, feel this way, that most women are relieved and uh, they're happy to have this pregnancy behind them, and it's not fair for uh, people to fight to take away their right to have an abortion. What do you say to them? Well, I, first of all, there are, you know, for me, I immediately had a really difficult reaction, but I certainly have met women and men who maybe immediately afterwards or even for a long time afterwards, they felt relief and moved on with their life. But in the years and even decades after that, um, those feelings began to change. And regardless of the number of people, we know that there are enough people who are hurting and uh, we need to be offering something to them because right now there doesn't seem to be a place to discuss what the effect is on real people and to discuss our emotions and our experiences, to be able to draw together to support each other to find a place of wholeness. All right, my guest is Micheline Friedenberg, and she is the creator of Abortion Changes You Outreach, and the website is www.abortionchangesyou.com. Her book is Changed, Making Sense of Your Own or a Loved One's Abortion Experience. We're going to open up the phones uh, for uh, anyone who would like to call in to talk about perhaps uh, their feelings after they had an abortion, whether uh, there was an immediate relief, whether there was an immediate um, depression, whether there was... I've talked to many women, Micheline, who actually, it just didn't surface again for 10 or 20 years, and then all of a sudden they thought back on it, and they began to experience depression. Have you seen that? Yes, I absolutely. I actually spoke to a woman this past weekend. She had an abortion 10 years ago, and it wasn't until recently that the abortion began to bother her. She's now 36 and feels that there's the possibility she may never get married and have another child. And so not only is she now grieving the loss of the child from 10 years ago, but also potentially grieving her inability to become a parent. I think of a a gentleman who actually called in on a different show today and said that for Um, close to 25 years, he didn't think anything of the abortion. He had pressured his girlfriend at that time into having it. But now, 30 years later, 
he's really beginning to have difficulty thinking about that child, but also feeling terribly guilty about what he put his former girlfriend through. Men aren't exempt from uh, this guilt. Now, one thing I've noticed is uh, a lot of, of the testimonies of women who have had abortion end up with an eating disorder. Now, why, why is that? Uh, well, I think certainly culturally in the United States, I think women are vulnerable to for eating disorders for n- a number of different reasons. But, I mean, I know myself that I did develop an eating disorder, and at least for me, um, it became a way at first of numbing out the out-of-control emotions that I was having, and later it really became a form of self-punishment. Uh, I felt that I needed to be punished, and this was a way that I did it. But it certainly is different um, for different women, the reasons why, but I think it, it usually is a combination of a way to repress the other emotions. It's almost like if I create another problem in my life, I can focus on that rather than focusing on the root cause, the abortion. What do you do to help young women who have had an abortion? Well, certainly something that we can all do is um, be very um, cognizant of the way that we speak about abortion to recognize that when we bring up this issue or this topic that many of the people around us have, that brings up painful memories and experiences for them and emotions um, that they may not feel free to share, and especially if they fear that either their experience will be dismissed or if they may, may be condemned or judged. So thinking about how we express ourselves so that if someone around us is hurting, we would be a safe place for them to reach out. But That's probably a good admonition for those uh, fighting in the pro-life movement that, you know, we hate abortion because we feel that it's murder, but we do have to kind of be careful with our words and the way we word things. Yes, and I think there's a way that we can express truth, but at the same time be expressing sensitivity and compassion and the realization, I think of a woman recently who I spoke to, and she said that, you know, she feels so judged and condemned every time that she hears this. And the thing is, it's not, that judgment and condemnation isn't really coming from um, those who are against abortion. She realized that it was coming because she had judged and condemned herself, but it just kind of keeps that on, and then she doesn't know who to safely reach out to. And that's part of why I created the website, abortionchangesyou.com, because it's a good place to start. You can begin to view other people's um, stories um, that are anonymously posted. Um, to That helps you to know that you're not alone. Your experience and loss is real. There's also interactive content on both the website and in the book of how would you begin to, to deal with that to begin that journey, and how would you invite others to help you, but those who would be safe, because I know that's hard to do when it's an abortion, because it's often a secret, um, and it's really scary to think of reaching out to someone for support. Do you address uh, what churches can do? Well, um, we're in the process of actually having very specific resources for churches that will be coming out in the fall, but that even at this point in time, um, I know of a church this weekend that, um, in a very compassionate way, um, highlighted the book, um, changed, and offered that to those who were in the congregation, and put up a link on the website to abortionchangesyou.com, and they're beginning internal discussions within the church leadership of how they can communicate that this is a safe place to to share and to find forgiveness, and that 
you know, you're certainly welcome here um, and that they want to help. But we will, um, in the fall, be coming up with some very specific suggestions that churches could utilize. Is the best place uh, for people to get in touch with you through that website? That would be the best place, abortionchangesyou.com. Micheline, thank you so much for joining me today. If folks want to get in touch with Micheline Friedenberg to talk about this ministry, maybe implement in your church, uh, you can do so by going to the website abortionchangesyou.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there is a new study out. Uh, it was done in Great Britain. It says most people think God is male. Nearly three-quarters of religious people think so. Wow, you think that would be higher. We're going to discuss this with Dr. Barry Creamer. He'll be in studio. We're also going to ask him about gender discrimination. Do religions favor a certain gender? Stay with us. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. She is like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, she just doesn't quit. She has so much energy. I've just got to give it to her. But uh, that's Hillary Clinton thanking her supporters uh, at her victory rally in Louisville, Kentucky. She got 65% uh, to Obama's 30% of the vote there. And uh, it's just amazing. She keeps going and going. Well, one thing about Hillary Clinton is she's always been a committed feminist. And uh, so she's not exactly on the same side as uh, we conservatives are about gender issues. And that's what we're going to talk about next. In studio with me is Dr. Barry Creamer, Associate Professor of Humanities and often frequent, frequent uh, host of this program. And uh, Dr. Creamer, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, uh, what brought you here today is uh, something we found. It's this study that came out of the U.K. Right. Uh, and uh, the article describing it says, I believe God is a man. I do, too. I believe he's male. Uh, a majority of people, says the study, think God is male, with nearly half of the population in Britain believing that all religions discriminate on grounds of gender. Only 1% think of God as female. 62% consider God to be male. This was an online survey of 1,050 adults in Britain. Right. And uh, so, of course, uh, we see the pronouns in the Bible, Dr. Creamer. Uh, sure. He, him, etc. So, just talk about first of all the biblical view of the gender of God. Yeah, the uh, well, you, everybody's aware that the pronouns that are used for God throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, are masculine pronouns. A lot of people assume from that, oh well, those are just uh, generic terms, like when you say he and you don't know who you're talking about. So it could be he or she. And uh, Hillary, by the way, you heard made fun of that today, didn't you? Uh, when she said uh, whoever she may be, right. talking about the potential nominee. So she's making she's making that point. We use masculine terms generically, but but in the Bible, it's not a generic term. It's a very specific reference uh, to the antecedents that are God, and God is referred to in masculine terms. So there's no doubt that on every page of the Bible, God is referred to in masculine terms, but also a lot of the symbols that are used in reference to God, and I don't mean by those that they're not literal, but I mean they draw up images in our minds that are gender-based, like he is king, he is father, and all of those references. And those are throughout Scripture, too, so that thousands of different times, uh, everywhere throughout the Scriptures, God is referred to in masculine terms. And so just reading it commonsensically, prima facie, 
fascia, however you want to say it, uh, the Bible clearly presents God in masculine terms as a male. Now, the question is whether that is uh, describing something that we're supposed to adopt as our view of God. And, you know, how obvious is the answer to that question if you believe the Bible is a book that teaches us something about God? Uh, But that reveals part of the problem in my perspective because— And not just from my perspective. This is part of the problem. Uh, The way people read the Bible is different based on whether they have faith or not. And people who don't have faith read the Bible as a book that simply describes Israel's religion. And so they read a book that's telling us what the Israelites thought about God, but not something they would hold as true They might not necessarily agree with it. Uh, yeah, and so uh, you, this is, well, this really aggravates me because a lot of people I can who, tell. <laughs> yeah, it does. It gets under my skin, this way of reading the Bible, because people can say, I, I can say to somebody, I've had this argument many times, you don't believe the Bible is true. And they say, oh, I do too. I do believe it's true, but what they mean by it being true is that it's an accurate description of Israel's opinion, not an accurate description of God. So that when when David writes a psalm, which they don't even believe David would have written, but when David writes a psalm and gives it to us, they simply read that as an accurate expression of what David thought. But that's not what the truth is in Scripture. The truth is in Scripture what David said not just the fact that David said it and he meant it. So I don't have to read the Scriptures and qualify everything with the statement, but then again, we're not Israel. I read the Scriptures, and all of it applies accurately to the truths that I should embrace as a believer. So uh, the first and fundamental question is simply how you read the Bible. And if you read it prescriptively, meaning if you read it as a book that teaches us what we are supposed to believe, then uh, the masculinity of God is really not on the table for discussion. All right, this has been a battle in the last, I would say, a couple decades over yeah. the gender Right. of God. And right. of course, there are even Bibles now out there that are gender neutral. Right. And um, the people that are publishing these Bibles and that are advocating these Bibles would call themselves, you know, evangelical born-again believers. Yeah, so where, is, where does that come from? <laughs> uh, you, uh, this is really funny because you mentioned a couple of decades before I directly answer your question. I just want to mention something else. I'm uh, holding in my hands a copy of this document that C.S. Lewis wrote back in 1948, in which he's addressing the crisis that they were having in the uh, Uh, Anglican Church at the time. And of course, theirs has to do with priests and what he called priestesses, because they were wanting to make gender neutral, the qualifications for having uh, women in in, uh, you know, the office, certain uh, mm-hmm. offices in the clergy. And uh, especially they wanted to have them as priests. And so he wrote this entire article. It's published in a little book called uh, God in the Dock a few years after his death by a different man. But it's uh, an article that he wrote in 1948. And uh, in that article, he relates these two issues that are coming up right now. Because when you're discussing the roles of women in church and you're discussing gender issues about God, you end up discussing the same topic. Uh, the same people who are it's called egalitarian. They believe men and women ought all to do the same things, that we should never make any distinctions that are essential between men and women. And we'll talk about that more philosophically in a minute if we have time to do it. But uh, the people who hold that position also end up holding a position about God that says that the descriptions of God that are masculine are just incidental. In, in, in fact, uh, I just, here's an example of, of where he's saying this. Now, for C.S. Lewis, when he writes this, he just thinks it's absurd that anyone would consider descriptions of God uh, as masculine, as uh, you know, ancillary or uh, insignificant. He just thinks that's absurd. So this is one of the things he says. He, he's arguing against having 
uh, priestesses in the Anglican Church, and what he says is this. Now, it's surely the case. Now, he has already made the connection to say uh, priestesses representing God would incline us to think of God as a woman also, and he makes a better argument for it than I'm making it sound like. But then he says this. Now, it is surely the case that if all of these supposals were ever carried into effect, we should be embarked on a different religion. Goddesses have, of course, been worshipped. Many religions have had priestesses, but they are religions quite different in character from Christianity. And his reason for arguing that is that there is a fundamental distinction between the way we think of men and the way we think of women, because there is a fundamental difference between men and women. And so uh, it, it, is, uh, it is antithetical to Christianity to speak about God in gender-neutral terms. Well, what about uh, those radical Christian feminists who would want God to be spoken of as a she? I mean, what difference would that make in your faith If you do that. (laughs) An unbelievable difference, first of all, because of the hermeneutic that I was talking about, because you give up biblical authority altogether. I mean, for instance, let's just say, if you asked a person like that, why do you believe the Bible describes God in masculine terms? Then their answer is going to be uh, accommodation is what it's called. It's going to be, well, he had to use God, she, whatever they would say, but of course it's he. God had to use masculine language to describe himself because he was speaking to a patriarchal, masculinist society. And so the only way they could understand his language was if he spoke that way. That's how they would answer. And then I would say, okay, but is it good that their society was patriarchal and masculinist? Was that a good thing? And, and of course, I would presume they would say no as a feminist, and they would mm-hmm. say no. Would. That was not a good thing. In which case, my response would be, so you're telling me that God accommodated his language so that they could maintain an immoral position in their culture? That is not what God does. When he speaks, if something is morally wrong, he challenges it. All he doesn't right. accommodate it. Yes, ma'am. Then let's get to the next part of this study, and that has to okay. do with how many people, about half in the study, think yeah. that religions right. discriminate on the basis of gender. Right. And I would always say sure. to people that, that say, well, there are certain prescriptions for the role of a man right. in the church and sure. the role of a woman and in the home, right. and that God makes those for a reason, but it's not that they're not equal. It's just right. that they're just different, but expand on that. Yeah. I, I, you know, there's an unfortunate thing here because it is true that women have faced a lot of glass ceilings. I know I can't imagine that you haven't run into things like this in your own career and in your own ministry in the efforts that you've done, because some people do have a bias, which is unjustified. You know, there are plenty of men. I know who expect their wife to jump every time they rattle their tea glass. And their wife may want to fill their tea glass, but uh, I don't think it's our role to just rattle our glass and expect the woman to jump. <laughs> I don't and have fill a husband glass. like so, that. <laughs> anyway, the, the point is, no, of course not. But the point is that um, we have had some unfortunate treatment of women in the past, and sometimes that's been associated with what has been said in congregations, just like there was racism in churches in the past. But that has nothing to do with what Christianity actually teaches, and the fact that Christianity teaches a difference in the roles of men and women has nothing to do with the discriminatory practices that have taken place in the past in uh, prejudicial circumstances. So divorcing those two issues, the cultural discrimination that really has taken place and included people who were Christians but not acting like Christians at the time, and then the more significant issue of whether there really is a biblical distinction between the roles of men and women in the church, that's a fundamental distinction we have to make in order to be able to carry out this conversation. Uh, Women ought to be treated differently than they have been in the past when they've been discriminated against unjustly. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we have to pretend that a man and a woman are the same thing. They just happen to have been divided culturally 
by our expectations of whether they were going to play with Barbies or tanks. That's just false. There yeah. is more difference than that. All right. Give us a call and join the conversation here in the last segment coming up. The number is 800-881-9270. Uh, hopefully all of you agree that uh, God is and should be referred to as male. And uh, what about this idea of gender discrimination among religions? And I guess that brings up a question about the roles of men and women in the church. Sure it does. I mean, uh, churches disagree on whether, for instance, uh, a male, uh, a female can be a pastor. Sure, and we've in had the body a lot of, of churches Christ. making decisions about that. Lately. We have, so we can talk about that. Dr. Barry Creamer, Associate Professor of Humanities at the Criswell College, is with me. And again, uh, we'd love you to join us. The number is 800 881 9270. Stay with us for more of Jerry Johnson Live. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. We've been talking about this online study, Is God a Man? It's coming out of the U.K., and when you really get down to the bottom of it, I can see that the poll was commissioned by the Movement for Reform Judaism in Britain, and it coincides with the launch of its new Daily and Sabbath prayer book. Now, the prayer book removes male descriptions of God, like King, Father, and Lord, in mm-hmm. favor of gender-neutral expressions, like Eternal One <laughs> and Living Arf. God. So they have an agenda here with this study. Dr. Barry Kramer is with me, professor, Associate Professor of Humanities here at Chriswell, and we are taking your calls. Let's go to Nancy in Corsicana. Nancy, thanks for calling. Hi. Um, yes, I was wondering, first of all, I'd like to say I do completely 100% degree, agree that God is male, masculine. But That's good. You, how do you answer someone that um, says that, we, um, that we're each male and female and that we're each created in God's own image? So it, do you say, um, plus, um, you know, they say in heaven there's no marriage or in marriage, male and or female, so, it, and that God is a spirit. So how do you answer someone who who would 
uh, come at you with that angle. Right. That's a that, that's a really common question. In fact, uh, I appreciate your call, Nancy, and uh, it's interesting because that's one of the next lines that C.S. Lewis actually brings up in this article. And uh, I don't mean to be just quoting it all the time, but I just want you to know that's one of the first questions people always ask. Uh, since God, this is I'm quoting C.S. Lewis repeating the question. He says, "Since God is in fact not a biological being and has no sex, what can it matter whether we say he's he or she, father or mother, son or daughter?" But then he goes on to say, "But Christians think that God Himself has taught us how to speak of Him. To say that it does not matter is to say either that all masculine imagery is not inspired, is merely human in origin, or else that though inspired, it's arbitrary and unessential. And that's the real key here, because gender is not just a biological question. It's fundamental to who we are created to be by God. And this is one of the things that our culture just does not understand. They view uh, gender as a purely reproductive artifact. In fact, even that becomes this non-essential state of being. Uh, When you read arguments for abortion, I heard the segment that you were doing on that earlier. When you read arguments for abortion, a lot of them are built on a feminist position that says women should not be treated differently than men, and because men don't have to bear children, they never become pregnant, of course, but women should not have to bear children either. And they're making the case that the purpose of existence for man and woman is exactly the same, that there is no essential distinction. And that's just antithetical to Scripture, both in terms of our existence as people in this world, our purpose as Christians who are serving God's kingdom in this world, and then us as reflectors of the nature of God, because it is not God created Adam, and in Adam, masculineness and feminineness found their femininity, found their uh, perfection. That's not the case. He created Adam, and then he created Eve, and it was in the complementary, with an E, relationship between the two that uh, that, that we have the fulfillment of the, what this human nature is that we experience in this world. And so it's, it's really just, ba- it's also why uh, homosexual marriage is not acceptable in biblical terms. It makes no sense at all, because complementarity is about the different roles of men and women, not just in childbearing, not just in reproduction, but in our relationship with each other throughout all of our lives, understanding that there are people who are fundamentally different from us. And the most fundamental distinction, biblically and culturally and historically, traditionally in every possible way, the most fundamental distinction is between masculine and feminine, male and female, and not just because of the biological necessity of it. Yes, go ahead. You know, it may fall to Christians to uh, make this argument in the culture because the culture is going a different way, as you say. For instance, you have, I did a commentary recently on co-ed dorm rooms where these university uh, officials think that, you know, it's not going to be about sex. It's just going to be about not recognizing that they're different. And and it's crazy. I mean, they're supposed to be smart people. Well, the kids who are in the dorms know they're different. Well, yeah, I guess so. And then uh, this whole idea of if you think your kid might be a transgender uh, it's just in the news right now, giving them a drug to delay puberty to give them an opportunity wow, to decide which sex they want to be. And that's, you know, that's what we have to fight against. Yeah, and it really is sad. Uh, people really do think that their kids become male or female because of the magazines they read or because <laughs> yeah. of the toys they give them as kids. What are they thinking? All right, back to the phones. Cheryl is in Mesquite. Cheryl, thanks for calling in. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I had always thought that of God as being uh, male as for the references you talked about. Then I took a class about the Holy Spirit and was told that although the Father and the Son are always <clears throat> referred to as masculine, the Holy Spirit is referred to in feminine terms. I want your comment on that. Yeah, well, actually, the Holy Spirit is not referred to in feminine terms. When you talk about the pronoun that's used in reference to the, to the, to the, reference to the Spirit, to pneuma, uh, holy is a modifier of pneuma, 
And so the, you know, the Hagion Numa, the Holy Spirit, is uh, being described together when you say Holy Spirit, but Numa is still going to govern. Numa is the Greek word for the Spirit, and it's a feminine noun. So just like in Spanish, you have nouns that are feminine, you have nouns that are masculine, and so you use el or la or whatever it is that you associate with those. It's the same in Greek, and so when you use a pronoun in reference to the word pneuma, you'd use a feminine pronoun, just like you'd say a ship is a she in English is about as close as we get to that. But there's no reference whatsoever to the person of the Holy Spirit being feminine in any way. There's nothing like that anywhere in Scripture. So uh, it's just a simple grammatical thing that's going on there. In fact, uh, there's a story Dr. Cooper, who is the provost of the college here, uh, tells about being in a Hebrew seminar, and they're wrestling about why, even in the Old Testament, there's some feminine reference to the Spirit of God in some way or another. And he finally stood up and said... <laughs> You know, it's in the lexicon. The The word is a feminine noun. They have to refer to it with a feminine pronoun. That's that's the mm-hmm. only reason. And so that's what's going on with it. We refer to our country as she, but sure, that doesn't exactly make our country right. feminine. Right. Uh, Dr. Creamer, you know, when you think about these people who uh, believe in sort of the gender-neutral terminology in the Bible, right. I mean, there are a lot of other things uh, doctrinally that they don't accept that are oh, man. are basic to Christianity. Well, let me and you know it's basic to a whole Christian worldview and there is more to a Christian worldview uh, than just touches on those who are believers and are in the faith. So our whole culture is influenced by whether we buy this line of reasoning or not. And so here's the here's the I mean here's the most fundamental issue. When when we say that someone is a, a born a, a boy or a girl or male or female or masculine or feminine, when we say that, we're a normally when we speak. We're asserting something about their entire existence, their whole life. They're going to be masculine or feminine. Man can go off to war and have a tragic accident and, uh, you know, lose half of his body. You know, he dies and uh, and doesn't die, but he loses half of his body. He comes back from the battle. He's still a man. He's still Mm -hmm. masculine. and, And he's still going to be male for the rest of his life because there is more to that identification than just biological existence. So here's the problem. Um, when I, like I ask my students this all the time in class, is to make this point about how we identify ourselves. And I don't know if I can get all of this in, but I'm going to do it just as fast as I can. I'd say, you know, if you changed your hair color, would you still be the same person that you are right now? If you changed your hair color, you'd still be the same person. Sure. sure. And so I'd say, well, if you, how, about if you were, uh, how about if you were born to different parents? Would you be the same person? Some people would say yes to that, some no, because they have confusion about, you know, whether they could be born to different parents, whether they think of themselves genetically mm-hmm. or not. But most of them say, yeah, I could be the same person, just have different parents and be raised by different people. The point is that when I say... Could you be a different gender and still be the same person? Most people realize they couldn't be. Your, your essential identity is wrapped up in your gender, and God has created you to be that kind of a person, a man or a woman. And that's what biblical being a biblical man, man or a biblical woman is about acknowledging that God has created me for a purpose, and that's what I want to fulfill in my life. And that's something that a lot of our culture is losing because they think they're just an accident, but there are no accidents with God, of course. No accidents with God. Dr. Creamer, thank you so much for being with us. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.